Whenever you get the chance, one of the best ways to practice Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, and as far as what the Word says, enticing one another to love and good deeds, just stop and ask someone what their salvation testimony is. It's a wonderful thing to hear the Spirit of God's spiritual story in everyone's life. Ask Paul sometime uh, what his testimony is. Uh, you'd be blessed. Uh, your life would be changed. Um, ask Norm his testimony, and you'd be the same. There's a story, there's a divine story behind every life here. And uh, it's a great way to encourage each other. So lots I could say about both those men. They've been a tremendous encouragement to me. Long before they help us worship in song, uh, their lives encourage us. And uh, to know what God's grace has done in each other's lives is really exciting. Uh, it's very encouraging. And um, so let's ask God for help today as we study his word, okay? Thank you, Lord, for, again, yet another opportunity to look into the perfect law of liberty, the word of God, to be, be faithful hearers and then faithful doers. And we need your help anytime that we open your book and endeavor to, to unearth it's truth, and apply it to our lives. So we pray that the Spirit of God today would help us do just that, that the significance of the words that we read would be brought to our own hearts and minds by Him. And as we prayed earlier, as a result, may we leave this place much more joyful than when we first came. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Remember we divided this book up into a few sections last week? And you remember three out of the four sections came to a conclusion. Do you remember what that conclusion was? Eat, drink, and be merry. Do you remember what we said? That sounds like a worldly cliche, doesn't it, right? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Live it up. It's not what Solomon's saying, is it? Remember what we said, how, we, how he would have summarized that in our day? Keep living. Keep living, regardless of the twists and turns of life. Remember 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourself under God's mighty hand, and he will exalt you in due time. Keep living. Three out of the four sections finished with that encouragement, but the final section finished with the most comprehensive summary of how we keep on living. Solomon says the conclusion to the whole matter at the end of the book is to fear God and to keep his commandments. How do you live? Eating, drinking, and being merry is not an encouragement to excess of living. It's an encouragement to walk with God when you attach the way the final section of this book and the way the whole book is concluded. Fear God and keep his commandments. God wants us to enjoy every part of life he's given us to enjoy within his divine parameters. Okay? And we have the opportunity to help each other do that. Whether times are good or whether times are tough, whether you enjoy your job or whether you don't, whether you've had the opportunity to enjoy good, some good pleasures in life or not, um, just keep living uh, in a way that uh, pleases God. And we cross-referenced last week 1 Thessalonians 4, 
Verse 1 and 2, keep living in a way that, and keep walking in a way that pleases God. As we wrap up our overview this morning of this book before we dive into its content, I want to tell us a little bit about the author and why he, at the end of his kingly career, if you will, looks back over his life and just says, just keep on living. Only fear God and keep his commandments. Okay? Knowledge of what it means to live life or to keep on living on purpose uh, always comes from the Lord, for sure. Solomon knew this. And we know this, don't we? After we come to know the Lord as our Savior and we learn from the Word of God, we gradually come to realize that God's given us His Son and His Word to live out life, as 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 says, in all matters pertaining to life and godliness, right? The Word of God, right? Remember, the end of all things is this, the conclusion, fear God and keep His commandments. The Word of God has given us every um, directive or any, every answer to life's spiritual issues, 2 Peter 1.3, and, and we live that out together. But there is one major difference between us and our author, Solomon of the book of Ecclesiastes, the teacher, if you will, or the preacher of the book. We have a completed Bible. We not only have a completed Bible, it's in written form. And every one of us probably has multiple copies of this book. Solomon lived his life really with five completed books of 66. No one in that time had a written copy of those five books that they carried around with them. Those five books were kept in the Ark of the Covenant. They were brought out at times during the year to be read publicly. That was the law of Moses, right? That's the Pentateuch, the first five books of the New Testament. And obviously the Spirit of God is inspiring Solomon to write his portions of Scripture, so he certainly had that. But this is a man that was living with what he had. He certainly was a born-again man. Uh, we're reminded, if you want to write here in the margin of your Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 24, um, he had a name Solomon, but Nathan gave him a name Jedidiah, which just simply means beloved of the Lord. Beloved of the Lord. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 14 and 15, Solomon had been promised the mercy and adoption of God. This was a born-again man. But 1 Kings chapter 11 begins to tell the story of how even a spiritually privileged child can drift away from the Lord. But yet, because the author was saved, he knew Jesus, and because he had the book of the law of, the Moses, of Moses, and at times even direct revelation from God, Solomon knew that he had enough spiritual information to live life according to the will of God, which is the word of God. So as we look at his life, remember a few things with me if you would. We'll see great success, and we'll see immense failure, great failure. Success was from the Lord. The failure was due to Solomon's allowing himself to be spiritually distracted by the good things that the world had to offer at the expense of 
knowing and doing the will of God that he had. And I would say that's a temptation of, for all of us in any dispensation, any time period in God's history, isn't it? The temptation is prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Solomon, by God's grace, was inspired of the Spirit of God to, to write for us the history of his life so that we might be reminded, no matter how spiritually privileged we are, you can step away. And isn't that one of the greatest shocks of the Christian life when we see a pastor step away from the Lord and fall into immorality, or we find a church leader doing the same, or... We hear of a godly person, you know, maybe embezzling money from a church that you used to go to, or maybe a, a spiritual giant in your family. Their good heart went bad, and they began to do some things that even pagans don't do. That's devastating, isn't it? Well, we know from Jeremiah 17 that our hearts are desperately wicked too. And certainly, we don't want to know how wicked we can be. So Solomon's message is to us, I found out. I found out how wicked I could be. It gave me the tendency in my waywardness to look at life in a negative way. But, okay, when you get back to the Word of God and you write your heart with God, you begin to look at life with a different perspective through the eyes of God. And you realize that the end of all life is to fear God and keep His commandments. And let's remember, folks, you remember back to 1 Kings chapter 3, when the Lord Jesus, when God came to, to uh, Solomon in a dream, and he had a conversation with Solomon in that dream, and he asked Solomon what one thing would he want. And Solomon, do you remember what he asked for? He asked for discernment. Discernment between good and evil, we would call that wisdom. And God says, you know what? I'm going to give you that wisdom, and because you asked for that, and not other things you could have asked for, right? I'm also going to give you great wealth, and I am going to give you good people, and resources that you could never imagine beyond just giving you wisdom. So you look at 1 Kings chapter 3 in the first part of Solomon's kingly ministry, and you realize that this guy had been lavished, he had been saturated with many, many, many good things. We're always interested in the most who are the most affluent people in our country and who are the most affluent people in the world, right? Well, I guess the, the owner or the CEO of Amazon now, right, is the richest guy in our country, right? Some of you would say, well, it must be a real bummer to be Bill Gates then, right? <laughs> Bill Gates, he's got it tough, right? Uh, it must be a real bummer for a baseball player named Bryce Harper to sign a $300 million contract. We look, at, we look at our world and, and, and we see people that are just showered 
with the good things of God. Nothing wrong with having a lot of money. But they've got everything at their fingertips plus. Right? And yet their lives are still in ruin. What a dichotomy we can't wrap our minds around. Solomon understood that. He was a Bill Gates of his day, if you will. He had all the money in the world, literally. He even had friends in foreign countries that lent him even more to build a temple. And it was just never enough. So remember that, young people. Remember that, everybody? Um, Proverbs says, The eyes of a man are never satisfied. When you get where you think you want to go, your human nature just wants what? It just wants more. And the more you get, the more you want. None of it satisfies. And even those good things can distract you from walking away from obeying God. So as we go through understanding God's wisdom and how to balance all this, we want to consider how God helps us keep in balance. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, said secularism, materialism, and the intrusive presence of things have put out the light in our souls and in some turned us into a generation of spiritual zombies. Many good things still could distract us from the good thing. I think we just should remember that as we look at the background of our author here a little bit more comprehensively. So regardless whether Solomon had the whole Bible or not, he, like us, have all that we need to live in a way that mirrors the character of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Solomon simply reminds us of this truth by highlighting in the wisdom of Ecclesiastes who God is and how he works. It's almost as if Solomon is saying, if I would just have feared my God and kept his word, I could have lived my life with much less regret. I could have enjoyed all these things with much less regret. So you will join me today, and let's consider with Solomon who God is and what he's done. And can we together gain a greater knowledge of who our God is from this book so that we may gain greater wisdom regarding how we are going to live the life he's given us in a way that mirrors his character, which is with as least amount of regret as possible. It's impossible to live life without regret. Would you agree? It is absolutely impossible to live life without regret because we're, we're broken and finite people saved by grace. But I tried to, I tried to put that wording together in a way that was, that, that was at least reasonable and encouraging. Let's follow God, let's know his word, let's keep his commandments so we can live our lives with good things that he's given us with as least amount of regret as possible. God is infinite, we're finite, we're also broken by iniquity. We will never be able to fully comprehend God, but in Christ, we, and with the indwelling of the Spirit of God, have the ability to gradually grow in our spiritual understanding of God so we can live according to the word of God. As we will always fall short in our comprehensive understanding of who God is, we can pray 
as Tozer did also in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, where he says, teach us to know what we cannot know. For the things of God knoweth no man, but the Spirit of God. Let faith support us where reason fails, and we shall think because we believe. Not in order that we may believe. Teach us to know that we cannot know, for the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Let faith support us where reason fails, and we shall think because we believe, not in order that we may believe. I wish we could somehow, if you want to write down, I guess we can do this, write down these numbers of the hymns that we sang this morning, because Pastor Mike picked all of those underpinning this truth that we just stated to you in Tozer's prayer. Right? And go back and read the words of this, these hymns this week to encourage your heart. Number 64, number 109, number 162. 64, 109, 162. Number 55 and number 70. As I was singing those songs this morning, right, God was reminding my heart again of everything that Solomon is trying to teach us in this book that we only understand by faith. I find it interesting here, and this may not be interesting to you, but nonetheless, I'll try to make it spiritually useful. The word, the name for God, Yahweh, is not used one time in a book written by a king of Israel. So when Solomon speaks of his creator... Specifically in this book, he knows personally he is Yahweh. He is the great I am. He is the God that keeps his promises. He's a covenant-keeping God. But what we do find here is that he uses uh, the name Elohim, God, some 28 times in the book. And for those of you that have known the Lord for a long, long time, the word Elohim is what we call a uniplural noun. It just means there's three in one. So, in Solomon's review of his own life and the conclusions that he's coming to, I really believe he's saying here, with a, using Elohim 28 times, that God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have all played an instrumental role in his life, and all of them were ne equally necessary. And what do we need to know of our God that's good for us before we dive into the thick of this book? Back in 1997, a seminary professor of mine put together a tremendous theological understanding of the overview of this book. His name was Dr. Michael Barrett. And he notes four different ways in which God is revealed in the book of Ecclesiastes, that are super helpful for us as we journey through understanding the rest of this book. First of all, we notice in the book of Ecclesiastes that God is every person's powerful creator. God is every person's powerful creator. Solomon recognized this himself. Only God has the power to create. For us, this 
undeniable reality teaches that God, as creator, owns everything and he owns every part of us. Go with me to chapter 3, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11. Depending on who you study for this book, many theologians believe that this is the theme verse for all of Ecclesiastes. Some would say the way he concludes is, fear God and keep his commandments, but uh, most would say this is the theme verse because it highlights God as creator, and in order for really to understand the complexities of life, you've got to know the infinite one first, who's got the whole world in his hands, <laughs> that which we finitely could never comprehend. He says here, he has made everything appropriate in its time. And he's also said eternity in their heart, yet so man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. Go over to chapter 11 and verse number 5 real quickly. I think it's good for us to be remembered that you personally have been created. We'll end here on this section, but I think it's good to remember this verse as we crescendo through or move through this particular section that God is everyone's powerful creator. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of a pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who, what? Makes all things. Life is sacred because our God is sacred. And He's a powerful creator. And he's made all things beautiful. The language in both passages is comprehensive. It's all-inclusive. It includes everything. Everything our eyes can behold and that which they can't is made by God. He's made everything by himself, for himself, and for his pleasure. Dr. Barrett goes on to say this. To believe that everything that exists is a creation of an all-wise, powerful creator gives the foundation of reason and logic to all that is, even when the reason for things remains hidden from us. Faith knows there is a reason because there is a creator. Faith knows there is a reason because there is a creator. So he's made all things. That includes you, and he's made you accountable to him as your creator. Man's unique place in this world is due not to the struggling of the species to survive, but to the design of God. Solomon echoes Genesis in Ecclesiastes. After sorrowing over the horrible state of fallen mankind, he states that God had originally made man upright. Do you remember chapter 3 and verse 11? God originally set eternity in man's heart. God had given man an understanding of himself in a sinless state. Adam and Eve knew 
that they were created by God. They walked with their Creator. They fellowship with their Creator in a sinless state. Go with me to chapter 7 and verse 25. He explains this a little bit more in depth in relationship to where he directed his mind in relationship to being created. He said, I directed my mind to know, to investigate, and to seek wisdom and an explanation and to know the evil of folly and of foolishness and of madness. And I discovered more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. Behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation which I am still seeking, but have not found. I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. Behold, I have found only this, that God made men, what? Upright. He said eternity in their hearts. But they have sought out many devices. God's made a man accountable to him as creator. He, he created them uprightly, with eternity set in their heart, and they invited. He's saying here, I stepped away on my own will because of the sin that I was born with, and I pursued a whole lot of women. Never really found the right one. But it's because I stepped away. How did he know he stepped away? Because he's created in the image of God. And part of that image means that he was created with a moral sense of right and wrong. Man knows. God created man to know the difference between right and wrong. Man knows. Solomon in Christ certainly not just knew that, but he knew how to get back to fellowship with God because he not only knew this truth, but he knew the God of the truth. We also see that Solomon teaches us that God created man with eternity in his heart. Um, there's something about man that will live forever. And because there's something about man where he can live forever, man will never be exclusively satisfied by temporal things. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's something in man's heart, many of you maybe called it, there's this void, there's this emptiness in my life before you met Jesus that only he could feel. And that emptiness is what Solomon's talking about here. God said eternity in, the, in your heart. He created you to walk uprightly, but you can't without help. And so you search and you search and you search and you search to fill that void with all kinds of things and relationships and jobs. And you still come up empty. There's still something missing. And Solomon says, well... 
That emptiness can only be filled by God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But until you come to know Jesus in your heart, you're given to pursuing your own schemes and your own plans. And just like Solomon says in chapter 7 and verse 29, man may follow his own imagination, trying to find meaning, purpose, and satisfaction in life, but the further he removes himself from the Lord, the more desperate his life becomes. And folks, don't we see that in our own culture? The further man tries to fulfill his heart's desire with things, his own ideas, and relationships that they define that are good, the more man follows his own schemes, the more desperate his situation becomes. I was reading something last night, and I thought it was appropriate for this particular uh, time, so I added it um, this morning. I hope I can find it. Bill Gates tweeted yesterday. This is one of my favorite, favorite inf infographics. A lot of people underestimate just how much life has improved over the last two decades. And he highlights here extreme poverty that's going down. Basic education is going up. Illiteracy is going down. Um, he highlights here the, the value of medicine increasing. Uh, child mortality, in other words, after birth. We all know our country is intensely killing kids before they're born. But after birth, child mortality rates are, are going down. And he says, life's good. And it's one of his favorite infographics. And then a pastor friend of mine retweeted that. And he said, then, why does it always seem that man doesn't seem like life is getting better? Right? Why does it always seem that the country's divided? And why does it always seem that People are against people, and why is there such animosity and hate and, and all these kind of things if life's getting so much better? And that's Solomon's point. Man will follow their own devices, their own schemes, and they may even lead some really good things, but it's never satisfying the state of their soul, the emptiness in their own soul. And the farther they move along in their own schemes, the more desperate their situation becomes. So I would ask you this morning, um, since God has set eternity in your own heart, and since you understand now that God had originally created man to be upright and to be righteous without sin, do you recognize now that you're a sinner? Do you recognize now that there may be an emptiness and void in your life? And do you recognize now that that void is not going to be fulfilled by your own schemes and your own ideas and your own things, and your own relationships, but it can only be filled by your Creator, your Savior, Jesus Christ. What does he say in chapter 12 and verse 1? As a man at the end of his kingly life, 
He's telling you kids, you young people, to do something. Remember also your creator. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. He's basically saying, don't do what I did, kids. <laughs> did you ever hear that growing up from someone older in your life? Right. Don't do what I did. Right. All kinds of things rush through your mind as a kid when you hear someone older say that. Well, why? You did it and you're still here. You must have been okay. So it must not have been that bad. So I think I'll try it. And they're saying, no, don't. <laughs> don't. Solomon's saying, when you're young, remember you have a creator, but remember this is at the end of this piece of wisdom literature. And what does he say about that creator? You need to remember when, he, when you're young right, that you've got an accountability to who's made you. Because he's righteous and you're imperfect. He said eternity in his heart, in your heart, right, you know you're going to spend somewhere forever. So, the most important thing for you to remember in your youth, do you know Jesus? Do you know him? Because that lasts forever. And then after you know Jesus, are you willing to follow, fear God, and keep his commandments? Right? Don't forget your creator when you're young, in salvation and in sanctification, if you will, growing to become more like Christ. The Bible says also here that God is our wise sovereign He's not only creator, but he's also our wise sovereign. Have you ever wondered in your life if God made a few mistakes in the way he orchestrated your journey? I want you to raise your hand if you ever felt or thought that God made a mistake. There's only a third of us. I need to learn from the rest of you how you kept yourself from ever thinking that. Seriously. I've doubted God multiple times in my life. And it seems like regardless of how I grow in my spiritual journey, I still have a tendency to think from time to time he made a mistake or two. Right? Well, we know God makes no mistakes. I know we've wondered if God's made mistakes but have you also wondered if your unwise decisions or the unfair, wicked ways in which someone else has adversely affected your life have left you in a meaningless vacuum of existence? It stopped you. You still come to church, you still serve the Lord at church, but outside of this environment, you're just kind of stopped. And what stopped you is because of something you feel God let happen that was a mistake or because something someone else has done to you to adversely affect your life. It's possible. It happened to Solomon. As a person and as a pastor, I've heard and been eyewitness to people and experiences 
where I just sit back and think what in the world can be the purpose for why this happened or why this person had to endure this. Why? What in the world? And left to myself and my own rational abilities, the apparent inequities of life become an overwhelming burden to reason through. And left to ourselves, life remains, in part, a semi-permanent state of being rendered immobile or incapable to move on. Life can paralyze you. Unless you sit back and remember that we're created by an all-wise, sovereign God. Many of you have sung the song here quite a bit. My life I give to you, O Lord. Use me, I pray. May I glorify your precious name in all that I do and say, let me trust you in the valley dark as well as in the light, knowing you will always lead me. Your will is always right. And one someday in heaven above, I see his dear face when may I then be counted faithful as a runner in this race, but now I'm trusting in the Savior to show me the way in his righteousness he guides me as I seek to please him day by day. I know God makes no mistakes. He leads in every path I take along the way that's leading me to home. And though at times my heart would break, there's a purpose in every change he makes so that others would see my life and know that God makes no mistake. Dr. Barrett says providence this ability for God to not just know the future, but direct your personal future. Providence is the constant and ordinary work of God, whereby he preserves and governs his creation to the design end of his own glory. Included in that glory is the ultimate good of God's people. Belief in the sovereign providence of God is the very opposite of fatalism. Chapter 9 and verse 1 teaches thus that the works of the righteous and the wise are in the hand of God and not only the affairs of life, not only are the affairs of life in God's hand, His purposes are secure and they are perfect. God makes no mistakes. He is an all-wise Sovereign God. Next week when we get together, we're going to understand that, that God is a perfect judge and that God is my supreme reality. God is our perfect judge, your perfect judge, and he is my supreme reality. And as we continue to understand who God is, according to the wisdom of Solomon, we will certainly be able to navigate through life um, not just more wisely, but more happily. Okay? Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you, Lord, for who we understand you to be from the inspired, preserved words of Solomon. And we thank you, Lord, that you brought us into existence, but that you govern our existence as well. Oh Lord, we have much more to understand as who you are as our sovereign, as our creator. We pray that you will use that which was offered today from your word to strengthen our hearts and to cause us to trust you more confidently. 
and to cause us to walk with you more gracefully as we seek to regularly understand who we are and why we're here according to your will. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.